But I grew up in music training stuff that I did, uh, thinking that classical music was the music that was by people like Brahms and Beethoven and Bach and Wait a minute, Bronze is an ice cream place. <laughs> Beethoven and Bach, those guys, you know, did classical music. But my dad informed me that that was not the case at all, that classical music actually is Hank Williams and George Jones and those guys. Okay, now, so I'm going to tell you right up front, I'm not a classical music kind of guy, all right? That doesn't mean that uh, there's not hope for you, but um, I just wasn't a big country music fan growing up as I ran a different circle of people. And uh, so I still, Lauren has helped me through the years to expand my musical taste. And uh, so a couple of weeks ago, Teresa and I were kind of surfing uh, evening TV. And uh, there was a Christmas special by some chick who does country music. Uh, What's her, Faith Hill? Is that her name? Okay. Never heard of her before. Now, okay, I've heard of her before. I'm just seeing if you're awake out there. So Faith Hill's Christmas special, she actually introduced a new song for me. I thought it was brand new, and then I went to check in on the Internet, and I think this special they ran was actually several years old. So the song is uh, A Baby Changes Everything. Have you seen or heard that? Uh, if you haven't, then you ought to, probably ought to go check it out. Now, it's one of those things, it's, it's this kind of song that just drives me nuts. It's repetitive, and it's the same basic thing over and over and over. But it gripped me as I was watching it. Because uh, she starts telling this story uh, about how this young teenage girl gets pregnant and that baby changes everything in her life. I was a youth minister for a long time. I've been a pastor for longer than that. And I can't tell you how many Christian girls that I've dealt with who have gone through exactly that situation. And that's what gripped me about this song. She's talking about how A baby introduced into the situation changes everything about her relationships and all that kind of stuff. And I just started kind of connecting the dots from my past with that. And the song gripped me because of it. And it sucked me into the storyline of the song. And then as she goes further into the song, we find that actually it's a Christmas song. And so she's talking about Mary and this baby who is Messiah, Jesus the Christ, And how that baby changed everything in her life. But the reality of Christmas is that it changed everything in history when that happened. It's a great reminder for us. Some of what we're about here and what we do during the Christmas season. And so that song has been kind of fresh on my mind over the last couple of weeks since then. And uh, it's allowed me to filter some things about the Christmas season through it. For instance... As I was, <laughs> we had a ton of people at our house. Okay, now that might be true weight-wise, but it certainly was true as volume. Okay, we had all kind. our kids, all of our kids were able to come in. And the only one that really mattered was our granddaughter was in for the Christmas break. And so I was actually watching the dynamics of our family because now this is Mackenzie's first Christmas to be mobile And she chose our house on Christmas Day for her first walk across the room, okay? Of course she would wait till she got to our house to do that. makes perfect sense to us. Uh, But I was just amazed at how the dynamic of this little girl, this baby, changed everything about how we did Christmas this year. Mine and Teresa's whole approach was just different with it. 
But you know, we look through history, and the truth of that song by Faith Hill is such that uh, we're, we, we ought to be reminded. If we haven't already been reminded, we ought to be reminded at just how changing the birth of Christ was. Everything in history changed. And God, at that moment, chose to step into this world in tangible, visible, fleshly form, and he did so with a very real purpose. I know when we say that that baby changes everything, there is this war within us that probably is going on. On the theological side of our brain, on the intellectual side of our brain, and maybe even on the emotional side of our brain, we grab that truth and we hang on to it. That baby changed everything about life. And we'll even fight for that truth. But that war within us is that part of us that understands and acknowledges that truth, but it also comes up against the reality of our lives And the fact of the matter is that many, many Christian people in churches today can't really say that that baby changed everything. Oh, they can say, well, that baby gave me fire insurance and I don't have to go to hell anymore because of what Jesus did for me, not just in the birth, but also on the cross and out of the grave. But when it comes to my everyday life and the living out of my life, Jesus is kind of a, Well, I'm afraid that many Christian people would have to say he's a non-factor on a day-to-day basis. And we've relegated much of the good news of Jesus Christ to that section of our lives that says we believe this. But we never expect it to get down into our feet where we live every day. So I want to take that concept today and I want to come back to what you got for Christmas. Did you get what you wanted? I didn't. I wanted a camel. Didn't get it. Did you get what you wanted for Christmas? We're going to come back to some of that in just a second. And what I kind of want to do today is I want to play a little modified words with friends with you today, okay? Uh, Because I want to take the passage that we have, and actually it's just going to be one verse, and it's really just going to be one piece of one verse. But I want to take the words and I want to lay them out on the floor here in front of us and let's just unpack the verse and let's look at what the words say and let me just use that as a way to say to you what you got for Christmas is incredible. What that baby did for us, what Jesus Christ, when he stepped into our world, did for us and the life that he lived, the death that he died, the resurrection and the continuing reigning that he does at the right hand of God in heaven today gave you stuff for Christmas, I just want you to kind of be aware of it. This is good news. It's a good day to be in church because there's good stuff in this. Ephesians chapter 1, we started into this last week. It would probably take me a year to get through this if we really wanted to dig deep in the Bible study of the first chapter of Ephesians. It is incredible stuff. And I'm skipping over a handful of verses here that you should be working through. And my encouragement to you really with this sermon today is to give you encouragement today about what Jesus has done for us, but also to kind of prompt you into some study as you go forward just out of this passage. 
Ephesians chapter 1, we, go, we, could, we could start in verse 3 and work our way through, and it talks about incredible stuff about who Jesus is and, and what he did as he came and all that. But I want to pick up in verse 15, but our focus today is going to be in verse 18. We get the context from verse 15 where it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. This is Paul talking. He's writing to the Christians who are at Ephesus. We talked about some of that situation last week. He says, now this is my prayer for you. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's the request, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Secondly, and a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him. And thirdly now, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. And Paul said, I'm praying these things for you. And he starts talking about Jesus and he can't help himself. He just immediately goes into this doxology of how great Jesus is. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church. Which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a great packed passage for us to consider. So let's just start and finish today in the first part of verse 18. Let me start off by saying you just got to see this for yourself. There are some things in life that you just have to experience for yourself. Teresa and I experienced some of that as we made our way through the land of Israel a couple of years ago. I experienced some of that as I walk through the streets of some of the large cities of the world in Turkey. Some things you just got to see for yourself, but it doesn't have to be on that big scale like that. Sometimes you get it right at home. I think that it was in 2004. I'm not sure about the exact date of this, but I remember in the Rio Grande Valley, now you think that we're South Texas here. Rio Grande Valley is very South Texas, or as they say down there, muy South Texas. And it was Christmas Eve, and it was about 10 o'clock at night, and we heard commotion outside. Now, our kids were old enough at that point. This has only been uh, maybe eight or nine, ten years ago, something like that. I'm not sure about the exact date that this occurred. But we heard commotion outside in the middle of the night, uh, which was not always a good thing where we lived. And um, so I kind of went out to make sure that cars were still in place and, you know, those kind of things. And I stepped out of the front door to a snowstorm. Okay, now storm is a relative word here. We got what uh, in West Texas we would have called a light dusting of snow. But in deep South Texas, it was a 100-year weather event. It had been 100 years since it snowed down there. And so we walked out and there's about a half an inch of snow all over the ground. So I went in and told my wife, well, the noise and stuff outside was such. The kids went outside. All of the neighborhood, people with young children on Christmas Eve had woken their children, waken, they got their children out of bed and they took them outside. And here we are and it's midnight on Christmas Eve and Christmas is gone. It's not even something we're thinking about because we got snow on the ground in deep South Texas. You just got to see that. I mean, it's a hundred year weather event. 
What really grips me about that is not so much the snow as much as it was the reaction to the snow. I've been around a lot of snow through the years. It's a nuisance more than anything else for me. I don't do snow very well. I like living in southeast Texas where we don't have to worry about that. But boy, I enjoyed watching those neighborhood adults and their children in the middle of the night laying in the snow, making snow angels, trying to build snowmen on a half an inch of snow. You just got to see that for yourself. The elation that came with that weather event. I want to take that picture and let's drop it right into our laps in the Christmas season. How long has it been since you got to that level in your relationship with Christ? I'm talking about that part of you where, where you're so gripped by Jesus Christ that you just can't help yourself. I'm not talking about, you know, doing somersaults down the aisle and flipping over chairs and all. I'm just talking about that sense of joy that comes from knowing that Jesus Christ loves you. Well, that's part of what you got for Christmas. Whether you knew it or not, whether you appreciate it or not, you got a reminder at Christmas time that the God of all gods, the only God, really, the creator of all that is, reached down in love and made sure that you could know it. That needs to grip us. But I expect that so many Christian people live their lives, and maybe you're a part of this, maybe not, but so many Christian people live their lives vicariously through other people. The only God that they know, the only Jesus that they get enamored with is what somebody else knows. And so they wander in and out of churches and in and out of other places in life, and they're looking for somebody who has an experience with God because theirs is stagnant. What you've got for Christmas was the opportunity to have a living, viable relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. Paul takes all of that, this very personal relationship with Christ, and he says, you've got to see this for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. I want you to have that. So Paul now in his prayer. He's just talking about, hey, I like you guys. I'm praying for y'all. And it's not that generic, oh, I'm praying for you, but it's the very specific, I'm praying these things for you. And so in verse 18, he says, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And I'm going to kind of start taking that and pulling it apart. But as we do that, let's recognize that here's what he's driving at. He's praying that they might have a deeper awareness of Christ, of who he is, and what he brings to their lives. I'm going to let that settle in. And I'm going to say it again. He's praying that they would have a deeper awareness of who Jesus is and what he brings to their lives. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Some great words 
that Paul uses in that. I'll take you to that Christmas song, that, that old Christmas song. Do you hear what I hear? Now, I grew up listening to that old stuff. I told you my dad was into classical music, and so I heard it from the guitars and from the voices of some of those old country western guys. There's Christmas albums of, you know, some of those guys who live like the devil all year long, but it probably sells to make a Christmas album, and so they did that. And um, Maybe that's a little too pessimistic, but whatever the case, that's what I grew up with. And I remember hearing this, do you hear what I hear? And it goes through, do you see what I see, and whatever else goes with that song. But the point of the song is not that this is the only person who can see it or hear it. It's a matter of degrees for them. We all hear the same thing, but do you hear what I hear in that? Talked to you last week about this moving forward with God and asking God to take you to new levels with him. That's what Paul's talking about here having the eyes of your heart enlightened, a deeper awareness. The word enlightened there, we might put it into the realm of photography. Let's do that. Let's see if it helps to explain this a little better for us. For us to say enlightened, it's like, oh yeah, I I got new information. But that word is much stronger than that. It's not that I, I was enlightened about the reality of whatever. This is a much deeper, more pregnant word as far as the meaning of it is concerned. When I was in high school, I, I went to class most of the time. One of the classes that I went to was a photography class. Now, I have to tell you, my goal in high school was not to get into college. My goal in high school was to get out of high school. Okay? So I took very serious college preparatory classes like underwater basket weaving and photography. And my favorite of all was student assistant. That's where I got to go to the German teacher's class. I was in German three my senior year, and so I went and just hung out in her classroom while she was, I was supposed to be helping her teach. I, those are the kind of classes I had. So I had a photography class, and I took it because a friend of mine says, you don't have to do anything. They'll let you leave class. You go around taking pictures. Uh, they have a dark room in the back. They teach you how to take the pictures that you've taken and take them off of the film. That was before, well, anyway, film. That's what, well, okay. So off of the film... And develop the film and then take the film that's been developed and you put it, transfer the image onto a piece of paper and you put this piece of paper into the chemicals and you expose it to the chemicals and all that kind of stuff and light it, all that kind of stuff. That's what we did in photography class. Here's what I learned in photography class. First of all, it was no blow-off class. I was mad at my friend for a long time about that. We had to work in there. One of the things that it taught me that really helps me in my spiritual life is that you imprint images. So when you take a picture without going into all of the stuff that happens, when you take a picture and the shutter opens on your camera or whatever it happens to be, there's an image that gets transferred. And part of the job of a photographer is not just to take the pictures, but to take that that happened here and preserve it over here. And the way you do that is you imprint what happened onto a piece of paper or onto a computer disk these days. That's this word. It is the process of leaving an indelible impression. That's what this word means. So when Paul says, I'm praying for you that 
you may be enlightened in the eyes of your heart. He's saying, I want this truth to make a lasting impression on you at the deepest part of who you are. Here's a couple of things that come out of that, just naturally fall out of that truth with what he's praying. First of all, it is possible for you to have a deep, intimate fellowship with the living God. This is so much more than having a room full of Christian relics, crosses on the walls, Bibles on the coffee table, nice sayings framed and hanging on the wall. It's more than just being a Christian culture. It's about having a vibrant relationship and fellowship with the living God. That's what you got for Christmas. You like that? But you see, the fact that Paul's praying that for them gives me the second truth. It's not just that that's available to us. Paul's praying that they will experience that, which tells me every Christian doesn't live at that level. Matter of fact, unfortunately, and I don't want to be pessimistic about this, I want to be realistic about this, but the reality I think of my life is, not only is it true of me, it's also true of many of God's people, we don't live at that level very often. Because it's just easier to slide into a Christian culture than it is a vibrant fellowship. So before we go any further, how is it with you? What you got for Christmas? The opportunity for vibrant fellowship with a living God through his son Jesus Christ? Leaving an indelible impression on your life? How are you doing with that today? And I don't say that and ask you that to beat you up. I say that and ask you that because I want you to say, you know what, I can have that. Today's the day. Merry Christmas in the truest sense. But you know, here's another element to this. I would love for us to be known as a church who prays the way Paul prays, which is, I'm praying for you that you would have such a fellowship with Christ that it indelibly, indelibly imprints itself on your life. You know what that means? That means other people see that in you. You can't hide it. You don't want to hide it. Well, that's part of where we're going to go with this because Paul doesn't just leave them there. I'm just going to kind of throw this out because I don't want to run out of time on other stuff. But he says, I'm praying that you have this enlightenment In the eyes of your heart, in other words, at the deepest level of who you are, at the central part of your life, you need to be marked by Christ. That's what he's saying. I'm praying that for you. How is it with you at that point today? Make it your prayer as you go into the new year. God, I want 2,000 and... I don't want to put it on 2014. I want the last three days of December of 2013 to be breakthrough days for me in my relationship with Christ. If you don't pray for that, it's a good chance it's not going to happen. Now, God could, you know, split the heavens, drop a rock in the middle of your living room and go, whoa, man, I should have this. Why don't you just say, God, if there's more out there, show it to me. That's a dangerous prayer because he might just honor that prayer. Well, things get messy then. Well, that's another story. 
All right, so that awareness now needs to occur at several levels. The way Paul prays this and writes this, I'm not going to get into the grammar of it all, but I'm going to get into some of the grammar of it real quickly. But the way he writes this is this awareness, this impression that he's talking about occurs at three different levels. He uses words in the grammar of this that cause them to be subordinate to the big idea. The big idea is I'm praying that you would be left with an impression of Jesus that is incredible in your life. Three different levels now. Three different examples of that. We're going to look at just one because I don't have time to do all three of them. may not have time to do one of them. Here's the life-changing impact. Well, I need to... I need to start at a different place. Let me go ahead and read it for you, and then I'll come back to it. Verse 18 again. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. Here's the first one. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. We're going to come to that. There's a second one. That you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Man, oh man. (laughs) There's a whole week's worth of sermons. Verse 19. Excuse me. And the third one, then verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power us who believe. Oh, man. We could get revival in these few verses right here. Well, not in church, I know, but in your real life. Okay. So here's the question. What if you sleep late on test day? If you've been listening, that question should make no sense at all in this sermon. I need to give you a background first. My dad used to say this. One of the great things I learned from him is he used to talk about this, the problems that we go through in life, the challenges that we face. And one of the most profound things that he said in my life, and he said a lot of profound things through the years, but I was listening to a sermon one day, and he'd probably been saying it for years, and I never really heard it, but all of a sudden, because I was going through some garbage in my life, here's what he said. When you face those challenges in your life that have a way of just disabling your faith, Say this to yourself. This situation is a test. Now that's like most profound stuff. It's so obvious that you go, should have known that. This situation that I'm facing that is eating my lunch actually is a test about how much I believe that God is really God. Because if we really believe that God is God, there is no situation that is bigger than he. Right? All right? But the problem with that is we get in, we get in these situations and the situation gets so big for us and our dreams are just on the, on the hook here. And I, everything that I plan my whole life around is now going to go down the tubes. And God is in the background going... Hello. It's a test. And the reality is that all of us deal with tests in our life. And if you're not currently in one of those, then I say buckle up because there's another one coming around the bend to get you. That's the nature of living. It becomes a test of our faith, and do we trust God, and do we know God, and can we get through this? So what if you sleep late on test day? Take you back to my college days. I had a guy, he's actually um, 
a professor now. He was an Old Testament professor when I was at Wayland Baptist University in the Panhandle. Now he's an Old Testament professor at East Texas Baptist University. He's been there for a long time now. Ricky Johnson is his name. Now, Dr. Johnson told us the first day of class, a bunch of preacher boys in college. Uh, he said, guys, most of you are going to go on to seminary, so I'm going to do you a favor, and I'm going to handle our undergraduate class level like it's a master's level class. Oh, thank you for that. Appreciate that very much. He was harder than woodpecker lips. I'm telling you what, this thing, he killed us in prophets class. It was a class of the prophets of the Old Testament. And he had us reading stuff. I didn't even know what the words meant. I didn't know you're supposed to get a dictionary and find out. I'd just skim over them. Not a good thing to do in Dr. Johnson's class. So we got to midterm. We had two grades, three grades in that class. Midterm, final, and a paper. And so we'd done all this reading in three or four different books, reading at a different level than I'd ever done before. Class notes. If you dropped your pen in his class, you needed to drop the class because you were going to be so far behind by the time you reached down and picked it up and got back to it. He just handled class at a level I'd never experienced before. And so we have this midterm exam. And Teresa and I live 15 miles out of town in the country. And I don't do well staying up late at night trying to study. My brain kind of starts shutting down early, <laughs> uh, earlier now than it did then even. And uh, so what I would normally do for classes like that is I would get up about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning and study until class time rather than staying up late and then trying to get some sleep. And so that's what I did. And so midterm exam is the next morning. And I'm pretty nervous about it. I go to sleep and I wake up. Now remember, it's an 8 o'clock class. We live 15 miles out of town. I wake up at 7.30 in the morning. Not studied. (laughs) And I thought to myself, we're just all going to (laughs) die. Probably 30 pages of handwritten class notes. All the reading notes and all that kind of stuff. And I just started feverishly skimming those things. I realized this didn't mean no good. There's not a way in the world I can study this stuff. I mean, lists and, you know. So I showed up at class, and I got there about 10 minutes until time to, class, to start. And all these preacher boys are spread all over the hallway. It's a second floor classroom, and these guys are spread on the stairs and on the hallway, and they're drilling each other. We've been studying. What are you going to? And I walked in, and my best friend, who I don't like anymore, said to me, you look awful. I thought, and I thought to myself, it's worse than you can even imagine. He said, what's the matter? I said, man, I slept late. I hadn't studied at all. Oh, you're going to die. There's no way you're going to pass. And then so now all the other preacher boys, full of grace and mercy, these guys were. They were glad that they weren't going to make the worst grade in the class on the test anymore. And I, <laughs> I walked in that class, sat down, and I thought, oh, man, I paid for this. I paid for this class. Now I'm going to pay for sleeping. And he handed it out the test, and I looked at it, and I thought, we're all going to die. So all I, and it was mostly essay stuff. I mean, you know, some matching, but so I worked my way through it, turned it in, and I thought, I'm, I'm dead. A couple of weeks later, Dr. Johnson's passing out those, those tests. And he comes to mine, and he looks at it, And he looks at me, and I'm thinking, oh, this is terrible. And he throws it down on my desk, 
And he says to the class, well, I'm not even going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what I made. Yes, I will. Um, he throws it down on my desk, and he said to the class, you guys should ask this guy how to study. <laughs> yes, I am the prophet's king of the class. Okay, so here's the moral of all of that. All right, here's the moral of all of that. It's not that I'm some smart guy. That's not it. I promise you, you know me well enough to know that's not the case. Here's the moral of that story. When you know it, you know it. You can cram and you can study, but if you don't know it, you don't know it. The corollary to that is when you do know it, you know it. That makes sense? So look at what Paul says here. I'm praying that you might be enlightened, that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, when you know it, you know it. This is a word that we use that actually, well, I guess I need to say a couple of things. That that you may know what? Well, he talks about the hope. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But let's finish the no part real quick. Dr. Yount, who was here a couple of weeks ago, a number of weeks ago now, uh, taught me some things also that he hadn't gotten to with us. But one of the things is on the, the thinking side of us, the intellectual side of us, there are levels of knowing. All right? So, for instance, this morning I got up. Some of you asked me about wearing a suit today. I told you. You could just take it to the bank. If you see me wearing a suit, suit, I can't even say it. I don't know. If you see me wearing a suit, somebody died and we're having a funeral, or somebody's about to die, we're having a wedding, or it's Lord's Supper Day, okay? And the deacons and I wear suits on Lord's Supper Day, okay? That's a point of respect, all right? So this morning, I'm putting on this tie, and I'm whipping it out, throwing it around, and there it is, Right? And I'm remembering this church I used to serve at, uh, our youth minister there, he's the pastor there now, one day came into my office and he's holding this piece of fabric and he says, I don't know how to tie a tie. I said, I can, I can, we can do it. And so I started trying to tell him how to tie a tie. For the life of me, could not do it. I couldn't do it. I took it, I tied it on myself and I'm thinking step by step, you do this. Tied it, took it off, handed it to him, said, okay, do that. He couldn't do it. So I tried telling him, couldn't do it. So you know what I finally had to do? The same way I learned how to tie a tie, my dad got around behind me, I got around behind Nick, and I reached over his shoulder. I'm sure glad somebody didn't walk in our office while that was happening. And I reached around his shoulder, and I tied his tie for him like it was mine. There's two different levels of knowing involved in that. There is that base level of knowing. Okay? I know that I live in Lumberton, Texas. There's another level of knowing that's beyond that. Let's take it it on an elementary level. You know your ABCs? Everybody please say yes. Okay. You know your ABCs. That's base level. We teach that, and I guess they still do, I don't know, with songs and stuff like that. We need kids to figure it out. Now, uh, we, we just 
by rote memory. You need to know these things. But sooner or later, we move them off of that because that's not enough just to know your ABCs. You need to know how to use those ABCs. So you start pulling pieces of the ABCs, the alphabet apart, and you stick them together. And what do you make? Words. And so that's a different level of knowing. But you also have to know the word has some kind of reality tied to it. So when you form the word dog, you know the ABCs, you know how to put them together and form a word, but you also have to know the concept that's there. You with me? A dog represents this animal, okay? Different levels of knowing. One of the highest levels of knowing something is when you can take it, internalize it, and put it back out there in a totally different set of words and explain what it means, It's the ability to take it and put it to work in your life. So the old saying in the alphabet, I before E except after. You have to learn how to use that stuff. That's the level that Paul's talking about here. It is the knowing that is perceived through the senses. It's experience-based knowledge. So with that in mind, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened and impressions made right, that you may know, experience, know on the highest level. It's not just the fact of it, it's the experience of it, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Specifically, Paul wants us to know God's grammar correctly. Here's what I mean by that. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The last word I want us to look at today. Be careful that you don't make a verb out of God's noun here. We use the word verb usually... In a, I mean, excuse me, uh, hope in a verb sense normally. Like, I hope I get a camel for Christmas. I didn't get it. What does hope mean? Now, this is not new information. I've said this before. This is a recurring theme now because it's a biblical theme. Well, how do we use hope? I hope that the Cowboys win tonight. Now, that's just diluted is what that is. But how do we use that term? That's wishful thinking. Right? Is that what Paul's talking about here? Not at all. Paul's talking about something that is nailed down truth. The hope, the confident assurance based on what God has revealed to us. Share this with you and I'll be done. Pretty close to it anyway. A couple of days ago, John and Lauren went into town because they could only take so much of me and Teresa and you know, they just need to get out of the house. And so they went into town. And they're going into a bookstore. I like that about him. He likes books. He's a good guy. They go into a bookstore. And while they're in this bookstore, he strikes up a conversation with a guy who works in the bookstore. Before it's all said and done, that guy gave his life to Christ. Because John and Lauren showed him the hope that is in Jesus Christ. That's not a verb. That's a noun. 
It is a confident assurance that life is available to us through Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas to us. So don't reduce the Christian life to a verb. I hope things work out. When it's test day for you and you didn't study for the test you're going through, place your faith in him. He is your hope. And when your world is crumbling around you and your dreams have been exploded and they're no more possible, there is hope. And it is in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I'm praying that at the deepest level of who you are, you will be imprinted with the reality of Jesus Christ and the hope that he brings to us in life. We have the opportunity to live life at a level that will blow your mind. That shouldn't surprise us at all. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life. That's hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's reality. And it'll blow your mind when it gets down at the deepest part of who you are. Years ago, I stumbled on this doing a funeral. I was preparing for this funeral for a guy who was from the greatest generation. He had been with Patton's forces as they marched across Europe. I've done a lot of funerals for World War II veterans. Always a very humbling thing for me as I sit down with a family and I listen to their lives and what kind of mark they left on this world. And as I sat with this guy's limited family, there wasn't hardly anybody there. And I sat and listened to their story. And then I met one of his commanding officers, actually, who was at the funeral. He came up and talked to me. And I struck up a friendship with this guy. And over a period of time, he started telling me about the guy that we had buried and about his own life and that greatest generation and the mark that they left. And it just dawned on me that we all have the opportunity to leave a mark in this world. As we go into a new year, the Christmas present that you received in Jesus Christ, that baby who changed everything, has the very real capacity to change everything about you in the year to come. All it takes is everything. You just got to surrender to him. 